Welcome to the Lit Matters Podcast, a show whose journey is to discover the books that matter, the stories that we should all be reading. I'm your host, Chris Evans, and I've devoted decades in education examining this very topic. Each week, I'll be joined by a guest, fellow teachers, librarians, writers, and lovers of books from all walks of life who will advocate for a single transformative book, one that we should all be reading. Through this podcast, I hope to build a collective bookshelf of amazing stories, lit that matters. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Lit Matters podcast. When I was a boy, I drove my parents crazy with the phrase, but why, but why, but why, but why? I questioned everything, but it wasn't until my very first day of college that my philosophy professor wrote on the board, the unexamined life is not worth living. And then she began asking questions. And I recognized quickly that I had not been examining things deeply enough, profoundly enough. I probably wasn't even asking the right questions. And I think that's the moment that my sort of inquisitive life of existential questioning everything began. And, and I love philosophy, that fundamental question of who we are. And I'm, I'm constantly trying to decipher things, but, but I am no expert. But today I am joined by an expert of philosophy. Phil Simpkin is a professor of philosophy and religious studies at Orange Coast College. And I hear he's also quite the talented musician, the lead, lead singer and guitarist of the Simpkin Project. So uh, today we are welcomed by Phil Simpkin. So Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's wonderful to have you here. I, I've so missed our conversations that uh, I'll, I'll say to our listeners, I think that Phil and I have conversed about books and life and philosophy around the, the Reprographic Center at our college for a very long period of time. And I just can't wait to, to return to that. So we'll do it by, virtually until we can get back live. How's that sound? It sounds great. And, and there we were separated by two buildings. And now we're going to come back to campus and we'll, we'll be in one building. One properly. building together. We will be neighbors. Yes, I cannot wait. As social science and literature should be. I agree. We we are always joined together. This sort of interconnective nature of of sort of you know inquisition certainly. So 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 Phil, as you know, Lit Matters, my podcast, is a podcast about books that matter, books that we should all be reading, um, books that sort of unite us and join us as a society. Uh, And I always start with this question for every single guest. Have you always been a reader? What is your origin story with reading? When did you become a reader? What were those books that you loved when you when you were young? Well, uh, when I was a, a young child, I had a lot of books around. And, you know, I, I opened them. I couldn't even read them, but I always opened them. And so it really started my fascination there. But ironically, I, I had trouble comprehending, you know, in my reading. And so I was put in resource classes and I, I really had to, I think I even had to go to a reading center for a while there after school to, to do more of the, the reading comprehension work. And, uh, and so I was a little bit slower than all my other classmates, but I think to this day, that's what got me um, reading deeper. And, you know, I, I would have all these, these really great friends that were really fast readers and uh, I was a little bit slower, but now I, I find out that that's kind of a virtue. And um, especially with philosophy. And so philosophy, you know, you, you read something once, you just got started. You know, um, a, the first reading, a lot of people, they read a book once, they're done, and that was it. And, and with philosophy, the first read, the second read, third read, this is all when it really starts, the layers start popping out and the richness of the text. And so um, uh, at some point, like you said, I, I ran into, um, I was a history buff going around community college. I um, kind of did all those classes and um, I was kind of leery of philosophy. It didn't sound that interesting to me, but I, I kind of exhausted all my history classes. And so ancient philosophy was left. And I said, oh, okay, I'll do ancient philosophy. And uh, one of the reasons is that my name is Phil. And I thought it was just kind of ironic. Like, do I want to do Phil as Phil? That's just kind of silly. But, you know, the universe had me pegged because as soon as I sat in that class and, um, you know, like you said, the first few questions, I was like, this is my field. I'm, I'm in the right place now. And um, and so I wasn't the greatest reader. I did not have many books under my belt until college. But then philosophy really uh, opened it all back up to me. And uh, it really made me dig into all the things that I loved kind of younger and, and, and to now, you know, meet them as an adult and in a much more mature age. And so uh you know, philosophy, uh, Plato. Mm-hmm. Plato was the was the great wake up call again, and I had dealt with him. I think 
some point in my high school years thought it was just sarcastic, ironic, but uh, meeting, you know, Plato again at that time, it, it really showed me, you know, on how many layers he's, uh, levels he's writing on, um, you know, he's doing, you know, philosophy, like um, the person we're going to talk about today, Ralph Ellison, he's also, you know, the omniscient narrator who's always in the back. He's never saying, hi, this is Plato. This is what I believe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so I teach a lot of Plato, um, especially for that reason, too. Everyone's saying, oh, this is what Plato thought. This is the mind of Plato. But he's literally the only philosopher that does not give you that. Mm-hmm. And so he does remain kind of in the background. And, uh, and so that, that's kind of one of those things, too. I, I found Plato and ancient philosophy did that for years until, you know, coming around to the text we'll be discussing today and, uh, and the similarities between those two. The use of, of um, not only narration, but imagery and, uh, you know, the, the heavy use of, of, of um, image and simile, I think, really connect them. Well, two things there, I think, for our readers as well. For those that are planning on, uh, you know, attending college, don't know your major ahead of time. Sometimes you want to just sort of figure that out, right? I think we expect our children to know exactly what they're going to major in bioengineering immediately. And sometimes even your name may perhaps you know, give the pathway of where you're going. But secondly, just to, to explore and discover those ideas. And I, I think I, I did the same thing as, as well. And, and two, I, I will agree with, with Plato. Uh, I think I start every critical thinking class with Allegory of the Cave. You know, what a, what a brilliant introduction to, 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 the, to asking these questions that we're not supposed to ask for looking for the imperceptible rather than the obvious. So, yeah. So it's one of my favorites. I, I, I even have my students depict the allegory of the cave for a small assignment <laughs> and it really does help them kind of understand how to apply it. And, um, you know, you can understand it in the context of the Republic, but what's so nice is you can just rip it right out of there and apply it in your own life and in, your, in you know, uh, on so many levels. And so, um, allegory of the cave, one of my favorites. So I have to ask you this question. It's not often I get to talk to philosophy majors uh, and philosophy professors. How many times in your life do you think you've been asked, why, why philosophy? I mean, that had to be this question that, that parents and friends were asking early on. Always. I mean, uh, I, and I found it so late in my life that, you know, being a little older, two people saying, what are you going to you know, possibly do? And um, my plan was to come back and teach community college. I was told along the way, it's going to be really hard. I don't know if you're ever going to be able to do it. And, uh, and then sure enough, I was able to turn right back around and find myself in a community college. And so I would also say, um, don't listen to, you know, all the advice you get. Um, uh, I always say, follow your bliss. And so it was something I loved. I knew I loved it that much that even if I didn't get that placement I wanted, this is what I wanted to study. This is what I want to spend my life investigating. And so um, I'm always telling my college kids that um, you're not going to necessarily have, you know, the greatest job in the world or make the mo- most money in the world. But what you're trying to do is do something that you love for that duration of your life when you're going to be working. And, um, and that's its own reward. And so um, you got to find that, you know, whatever it happens to be. And so, especially reading Plato, um, it, it's, it's about finding your function. You know, what are you going to, what are you going to do um, in this world? And uh, um Anyways, I, I don't want to go off too much on Plato and the Republic, which I could do. But uh, and here that I am would be preaching another again, like episode. I another episode. I will have you on just Plato. That would be fantastic. It's funny. I think that we, uh, now that we will share a building at Orange Coast College, uh, those same uh, the same pieces of advice you're giving to students, they may be echoed just down the hall where I'm sitting as well too, because I think I've been given the same advice for 25 years of teaching as well. That you know you have to follow your bliss. You have to study what you you know. And, and find what just invigorates your soul, not necessarily what invigorates your, your pocketbook. And you will find a job, right? You will find something that, that, that is your mission and your calling in life and you'll be happy doing so. Yeah. And, and I do get students that come to me and they, they say, what am I going to do with this? You know, look, I want to do this. What am I going to get out of this? And, mm-hmm. you know, I would be a prophet to tell you, I knew, you know, <laughs> uh, all the directions, all the, the, the phases in life that you go through and, uh, all the, the the degrees that I've seen applied in different areas after, you know, they graduated and things. So, so I really don't know, but I am happy to teach a lot of non-philosophy majors about this and have them take philosophy back with them wherever they go. I think that um, the kind of philosophy that I do too, it's really basic. I tell people philosophy is simply the art of questioning. 
And we do that everywhere we go. And so, you know, we, we definitely, you know, aren't, aren't exclusive to that. But uh, so I, I love that where people bring philosophy into their life in that practical way. What am I going to do? Uh, what am I doing here? Where am I going to go? Uh, and so it, it's really um, powerful uh, and, you know, uh, rewarding subject to be teaching. And I don't know. I don't know how we go through life not asking those questions, like what that existence would be like. It's so fundamental. Well, Phil, I know you're also, and I, and I have to throw this in, I know you're also quite the musician as well, too. And, and so I want to give you an opportunity very quickly. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're a philosophy professor to, th- to throw out, like, these are three books of philosophy that everyone should at least turn to and try and, you know, try to, to, to figure it out and, you know, question and, and just examine it a few times, but also maybe three albums, three, you know, three musicians that you would say, you know what, your life's not complete till you've given this person a listen. So three albums and uh, or three artists and three works of philosophy. Well, well, good. I'm glad we're going with artists rather than albums because that makes it even harder. <laughs> but, um, you know, some sometimes people skip the Bob Marley and the Whalers with reggae music. And uh, with me, you you can't do that. You have to um, give that a, a good listen. And, and the catalog is so big that I, I think um, it's important not to skip that part. But even people, um, you know, like my younger brother, who they didn't grow up in the digital age or they did. Not like me, we have to go and look at catalogs and go to a, a CD store. They grew up with all this stuff that I could never get my hands on. And so, um, you know, you can instantly get into other acts. And so one of the great acts that I always loved is called the Abyssinians. Mm-hmm. And I'd love for, for people to get into Abyssinians. Another, uh, you know, amazing reggae band, I would say, is a band called the Gladiators. And in uh, in big youth and... Uh, you know, so many others, a burning spear. I just, I could go on and on, but um, as far as books, uh, I would definitely go with the Republic, but I'm scared for people to go and read that on their own. Mm-hmm. It does sometimes take a little um, help. And so I was lucky to, to find someone who could help me read that text mm-hmm. and, uh, and then give it plenty of, of time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's another one of those ones where if you read it once, you're just getting started. Yeah. Um, even the very introduction, um, has and a lot of people don't know this betrays uh the allegory of the cave <clears throat> excuse me even the beginning betrays the allegory of the cave in kind of a, a reverse manner mm-hmm. and, and it goes right over people's head they don't even see it mm-hmm. um and so that's kind of fun um but the other ones we're going to discuss today um invisible man really changed my perspective on so many things and uh and opened you know my door i also you know was not going to read the book about the big fish did not interest. Sorry. I did not want to read that one. And then I finally got around to it and I was just stunned. Moby Dick was such an amazing, um, uh, it was, it was like poetry on a different level. It was like, um, using imagery. Uh, it was, it was filled with images and illusions Mm -hmm. and that it was so artistic the way it did that. And it reminded me once again of Plato and the way that he, um, he makes points and whenever he makes a great point, he will wrap it up with a simile yeah. to a nice mnemonic device of some kind, a nice image that'll really keep, you know, the point in, in mind as you go. And I felt the same thing happening in, in, in you know, with Melville. And uh, and so it really that one also changed my perspective and, and so many, so many others, you know, uh, we can go Eastern philosophy and uh, mm-hmm. Bhagavad Gita and, you know, Don Quixote, you know, mm-hmm. things like this are, are uh, you know, amazing works. And I did. Uh, listen to a, a couple works when I would, I'd have a job where I'd have to, you know, uh, be vacuuming and, and other things. And so I would just put on headphones and, uh, and get, you know, whatever in I could, but also um, seeing it and reading it very, very important. Yeah. You know, my, my first episode of, of this podcast was obviously Moby Dick and, and I, I invite our listeners to go back and listen to that one, but I'm waiting for someone. I've been asking for someone to do Don, Don Quixote because to me, that is a novel that, you know, it, it, it is to me almost like King Lear. You are examining what it is to be human, looking back upon that. And that's one of the most lovely, brilliant novels ever written. And he's writing exactly the same time Shakespeare. You know, you have two of the great masters writing that story almost exactly at the same time. Just brilliant. Yeah, um, I, I wasn't um, aware that it was such a suppository. I yeah. didn't know that it was just, you know, um, you know, Don Quixote. And yeah. uh, it's just 
you know, kind of the the mouthpiece for so many other tales. Mm -hmm. And so you forget you're reading Don Quixote when you're reading it because you're, you know, in a tale in a tale. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's exactly what you get in Plato and and so much good writing is the play within the play. Well, Phil, today we are here to talk about Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. So I want to make that transition as well, too. And I'm so excited about this. Just like I loved going back to reread Moby Dick. I had not read it since I was very, very young. And I read Don Quixote often. Every couple of years, I go back and reread Don Quixote. I've not reread Invisible Man in quite a while. And mind-blowing, stunning how amazing this was. So to make the transition to Invisible Man, can, can you tell us a little about the author, Ralph Ellison? Like, who was he? What was going on when he wrote this novel? Just give us a little context. Well, um, I usually keep that a secret when I teach it. And ah. so when I, when I teach this, I always, I write the name Ralph Waldo underline. Mm-hmm. And I say, fill in the blank. And so everyone says, Ralph Waldo Emerson, of course. Mm-hmm. And I say, ah, yes, that's the one I wanted. But this is uh, someone who's named after this philosopher, but not this philosopher. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I still keep kind of his background a secret, just as the narrator keeps his you know, background a secret. Um, but since we know who this author is here talking in this discussion, um, he's famously, um, he's, he's, I think, born in Oklahoma. And at that time, there was a lot of um, African-Americans from the South who had migrated out there. Um, he will go, I think, play music and get a scholarship and find himself in Harlem in New York, um, right at, a, a, again, a massive point in the historical, you know, picture where a lot of migrants are all, um, kind of forced, um, you know, to, to, to move out of the South and go up North. And so um, he's got his eye on that entire movement of kind of African-Americans um, moving all over, you know, the Eastern United States. And uh, he puts all of those experiences into this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, too, African-American experience, obviously is his own, but he has a much broader viewpoint in mind. And he will actually get Griff I believe for that um, from, from other, you know, uh, civil rights activists for not being direct enough on their community, um, but really have more like a philosopher's view. This is, mm-hmm. this is something for whoever can apply, whoever can identify with this, whatever you can apply it to, this is for you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Phil, Phil, for those who haven't read the novel, can you give us just a quick spoiler free? Like this is the least you need to know without giving away, you know, you've mentioned the narrator and we'll come to that back to that. And I agree with you. It's, it, it, I think the, the unnamed narrator of this novel is one of the greatest in all of literary history. Just, just brilliant. The voice is so fantastic and powerful, but before we get to that, can you give us a just least you need to know this is, this is an overview of the book. Well, um, there's a, a quick description. I think we're going to even read it uh, of what he thinks um, is going on uh, with the way people see other people. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the way I could I could put it. And so um, he really gives you a definition of kinds, a descriptive kind of idea of what he thinks invisibility is. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this philosophical concept of it. And then he's going to take this and he's going to apply it first to um, a very powerful image of racism. Mm -hmm. But then he moves on to show you this also is applied to age and class and gender and, you know, uh, working roles. Everything you do in life comes with a a certain role and a view that people have of you. And so we, you know, we get this kind of philosophical view of, of what invisibility is. And then we see this character go through various roles in his life. And we, we, we see it kind of play out until at the very end, he finds himself wanting to step away from all these identifications and, um, and try to live authentically without being defined by, you know, all these, these roles. And so, um, you know, that's, that, it's a really large book too. And so um, you don't have to read a lot to get into, I think, you know, um, the meat of the philosophy. It's right in the beginning, mm-hmm. but then the story really does, um, apply it in, in a long form. And, uh, and so it does have a very different tones. It'll be very just in your face. Like, and, and, and again, the, the narrator does sound like it's a tribute to Dostoevsky mm-hmm. to notes from underground. At least mm-hmm. I know um, notes from underground also sounds like another work of his. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's got two that really start out almost identically and he's following that same pattern. And, and so you have this like underground man tone in the, in the, prologue and then you get into the work and you have this beautiful american narrative 
kind of tone. And so they're very contrasting. And there is this, this thing that the cover, I don't have it with my copy, but it was just the man's face and it was black and white. Mm-hmm. And again, you couldn't tell what the race was or anything, but this contrasting between light and dark, mm-hmm. you know, that imagery, it's really right there in the very beginning. And it's even played out, I think, in the literary tone. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, are you sure you're not a lit teacher? Uh, you, know, you start loving it so much i also do religious studies and so um you start doing bible as literature and things and you have to start getting into literary theory and so um so much fun so, so i'm curious phil so so what are what's your what are some of your favorite parts of the novel some of the parts that you want to share with your students that you know locations and spots and choices and decisions and you know, what are some of your favorite spots of this novel? You know what? <clears throat> well, I, I do love that. There's there's really the, the part that I teach is only the, the first two and a half pages in the very front. Ah. And we just start reading it right right from the start. Sentence one. And, and that's as far as I need to go mm-hmm. um, to, to do my, you know, usually one class, you know, um, feature of this text, which is not enough by any means. Mm-hmm. But there's also another section right in the middle where he becomes a... Um, a worker at a paint factory mm-hmm. and he hits his head, I believe, uh, or it's the fumes, I believe that, that um, knock him out. And he has another episode that reminds you of the prologue again, mm-hmm. very, the same kind of, un, you know, um, underground man tone. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I, I love those two parts the most because they're the most kind of Dostoevsky and philosophical. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the ending too, it's very powerful. What I wasn't expecting was also, I, you know, I study reggae music. I um, Reggae music revolves around this thing called Rastafari. A lot of people don't understand a lot about it. And um, this is happening pre-Rastafari movement, but it's also talking about how people um, here in the United States were being, um, you know, inspired by Marcus Garvey mm-hmm. and a lot of Jamaican, you know, migrants were coming up. And so the, you know, uh, I guess the villain of the, the tale is Ross the Destroyer. Mm-hmm. And so, what, what, you know, this is before reggae music where people talk about Ross this and Ross that. And, uh, and here it is in a book from the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he really had his finger on a pulse of things that continue on to this day. And he puts in, um, I think it's a critique of Marcus Garvey mm-hmm. and, and that movement. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think uh, it's, it's not you know, um, right on the surface. And, and so I, 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 I'm, I'm interpreting here, mm-hmm. but I think that is definitely, um, you know, he sits on one side of the civil rights movement that was going at the time than maybe others. And so Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, they kind of sit on one side and then you have Martin Luther King Jr. And guys like Ellison on the other. Mm-hmm. Some, some were saying, you know, self-rule, mm-hmm. you know, separation and self-rule that's just fine as long as we have equal self-rule and other people are saying, no, it's just equal access to um, same opportunity. And so a little bit different. And and so Ellison's going to be on that side. And so he really, um, you know, he's making this larger, he's making this not just an African-American issue. This is, you know, it's, and that's why I think it's before feminism Mm -hmm. before critical theory, but it's really, um, I think it, it kind of gives a foundation to that, but also is a little bit uh, wiser than that too. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not, he's not really, you know, laying it out the way that it will be laid out. But I think that he sees the problem that, you know, critical theory and feminism and things are really trying to overcome. And uh, I could call him a feminist. That term is really bad. You know, it, it means so much now. Um, it started out with, you know, dealing with women. And then it goes on directly to who else is being marginalized mm-hmm. and, you know, to all other marginalized peoples. And that's when um, you get into critical theory kind of in general. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it's questioning roles, it's questioning identity, and it's telling people not to define yourself mm-hmm. based on those things too, which I think is um, an interesting you know, point to make, you know, good mm-hmm. or bad, especially right now. Yeah, I know. I think if I remember correctly with the paint company, um, they, they only make white paint, if I'm not mistaken. That's their most famous for. Uh, right. and, and, if, and you're right. We have that contrast between the brotherhood and then, you know, Ross, the exhort, you know, exhorter who becomes the destroyer. That's the wonderful mm-hmm. part of the novel. Yeah. Um, and the little community there, right, um, that they have to break into. It's kind of a, 
you know, um, unincorporated area there in New York. I think it must be in the park mm-hmm. somewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, you have, you know, I, I don't want to give away too much, but there's this wonderful scene with Brother Clifton um, that is, I think, transformative. You you mentioned like what the side he stood on. And I know one of the lines that jumps out uh, is at one of the Brotherhood meetings. And I think uh, he says, we are all Americans. Right. And, and it's the way he sort of unites them as well, too. Um, do you mind reading your favorite passage of the novel, the, the part that really speaks to you that uh, our listeners would, would love to hear? I, I always loved this book because I thought reading it right from the very start, the first sentence, it caught me like no other novelist ever caught me from, you know, sentence one. And so that's where I always go. I just go right to the very beginning. Um, I found this text, too. It's not usually paraded around in philosophy departments, um, but it was, I found it when I took a class on existentialism mm-hmm. and, um, and it was just like thrown at, thrown at the very end of this massive book, mm-hmm. just a couple pages of Ellison right after Camus, mm-hmm. you know, and all the other amazing existentialists. But, um, and so I found it just, in, you know, with all the other existentialists, but here I am. I am, am an invisible man. No, I'm not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I'm a man of substance, of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. Like the bodiless heads you see sometimes in circus sideshows, it is as though I have been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings, themselves, or figments of their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me. Nor is my invisibility exactly a matter of a biochemical accident to my my epidermis. That invisibility to which I refer occurs because of a peculiar disposition of the eyes of those with whom I come in contact. Mm a matter of the construction of their inner eyes, those eyes with which they look through their physical eyes upon reality. I'm not complaining, nor am I protesting either. It is sometimes advantageous to be unseen, although it is often rather wearing on the nerves. Then too, you're constantly being bumped against by those of poor vision. Or again, you often doubt if you really exist. You wonder whether you aren't simply a phantom in other people's minds say a figure in a nightmare, which the sleeper tries with all his strength to destroy. It's when you feel like this, that out of resentment, you begin to bump people back. And let me confess, you feel that way most of the time. You ache with the need to convince yourself that you do exist in the real world, that you're a part of all the, of, of all the sound and the anguish. You strike out with your fists, you curse and you swear, you make them recognize you and alas, it's seldom successful. So I do read a little bit more in my class. We go into the next story and then we read the little bit that follows where it says, most of the time, although I do not choose as I once did to deny the violence of my days by ignoring it, I'm not so overtly violent. I remember that I'm invisible and walk softly so as not to awaken the sleeping ones. Sometimes it's best not to awaken them. There are few things in the world as dangerous as sleepwalkers. Um, and so really powerful stuff, the bumping people back, all that, um, that will play out in the novel. It also reminds me of notes from underground again, right? Um, the, the, the little tussle he gets himself into, um, not to mention, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, Moby Dick mm-hmm. in the very beginning. Right. And so I wonder if there's also uh, a little bit of an allusion there mm-hmm. to, uh, the opening paragraph in Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but really that's all I, I usually have to go into. And then I start asking questions in my class. Mm-hmm. So what is invisibility, you know, in this context? And um, the, the key line, I think that, that when I first read it, I didn't understand properly was this one that says, um, like the bodiless heads you see sometimes in circus sideshows, it is as though I've been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. Mm-hmm. And so in, in what sense? And so I had the wrong image in my mind at first. I was like, oh, he's, he's like in a fun house. And there's mirrors all the way around him. 
But then I had to realize, no, these mirrors are around you. They covered, they surround you. And so um, in my class, I, I think there's a, an arcade fire al- uh, video where this guy's got glass all over himself. I show a picture of that. And I'm like, this is what it would be like. And, um, and so, and what do they see? It, you're walking around. All of us, we walk around basically with mirrors on us, is what he's saying. And when people see you, what do they see? They see the surroundings. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what does that mean in all these contexts too? Themselves. Mm-hmm. So they see themselves in, in you, right? Mm-hmm. For good or for bad. Or figments of their imagination, right? And so anything that you want to project. And so in that sense, you're almost not even like a mirror, but like a, a white projector walking around. And everyone's like a video camera. Mm-hmm. And um, they see what they want to see. And so um, as far as you're concerned, you're invisible. Mm-hmm. They don't yeah. see you. You're somehow behind this thing. And so this causes an existential angst and anxiety. Do I even exist? Mm-hmm. Am I basically, uh, as far as my existence is concerned in other people's minds, it's a fantasy. Mm-hmm. They really don't know me. They've never seen me. And so um, I, uh, and then I say, okay, well, um, we read the next section that I skipped here. There's an altercation. And sometimes this brings out a really interesting kind of point from my students. We read about the altercation between a, a, a tall blonde man and a, and a black man, we assume. Um, there's illusions that tell you, you know, some of those key elements. But they get in a scuffle and, uh, you know, one man's about to kill the other and he realizes this revelation. Look, this guy only saw what he wanted to see. He didn't even see me. So basically he's fighting with a phantom of his own creation. Um, and I'm playing into it. I need to stop right now. And, uh, you know, this is not real. This is not reality. And so um, it's really interesting because it does bring up a, a, an interesting point. People, you know, sometimes want to say, oh, well, look, one went to the point of extreme violence. And they want to say maybe because of, you know, what side they're on or something. And you always have to remind people, look, uh, all over the world, two males call each other names and uh, watch out. It doesn't, you know, it's not based on anything other than, you know, uh, aggressive male behavior, I'm sure. But the issue is obviously racism, right? And then the next, the first chapter, when you read it, um, it's probably one of the most vicious images of racism ever captured in literature where honor students, black honor students from the South are pitted against each other in boxing rings for a bunch of, you know, older white, you know, um, folks. Anyways. Um, Battle Royale, so, right? I mean, that's the, that's the name Royale. of that chapter. It's, it's, hor- it's horrific. Uh, that was my first introduction was actually that section of the text. I had a teacher that skipped the part that you just read <laughs> and went straight to that chapter and, 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 uh, you know, like you, I, I knew that I was immediately, I need to understand this. I need to process this because it's such a shocking, shocking description. Um, yeah. And again, too, the, the name, the title, like you said, Battle Royale, is is this an illusion or, excuse me, is this a inspiration for Battle Royale? And then again, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the big, big one now, um, Gosh. Oh, um, uh, Hunger Games. Hunger Games. Hunger Games. Exactly, right? Does this <laughs> So for somehow... our podcast listeners, uh, there was an image of a bow being shot, and we had to figure <laughs> out now in this in this non-visual medium. <laughs> My apologies. I, I should have I should know. I should have watched and read those by now, and I still haven't. But um I did see the original Battle Royale, and I'm wondering, just because students being pitted against each other in a ring, I'm wondering if that's this inspired those, you know. But, but anyways, um, racism is obviously brought up here. And this is exactly, I think, all the civil rights people in the time reading this, they would really have that, you know, um, in their mind. But then what I do in my class is I say, okay, that's true. It's about racism. Instead of having to read the whole book where you see now he's going to be an honor student from the South that's so highly respected. He's driving around dignitaries and, uh, you know. And then they all have expectations and see him in a certain way there. And then he's going to have to leave there and and be an immigrant and have to go just find work like all the other immigrants and the expectations, the way people see them in that role. And so um, what I like to do then is just say, okay, racism that pops out from the introduction. What does this 
um, what's the larger overarching, you know, uh, class that this is a category of? Mm-hmm. What is racism um, categorized under? And so people are always looking around, ah, bias, stereotype, uh, discrimination, mm-hmm. right? This is just about discrimination. And so what other categories are there within the category of discrimination? And so racism, obviously a huge one, but what else do we discriminate people based on? And so this is where we can take these lessons, this, this idea of being invisible and apply it to our, your own life. Do you ever feel like you're invisible to people? They're just seeing what they want to see. They're just seeing something else. And so um, we make this massive list. We say racism, sexism, classism, gender, sexual orientation, yada, yada, yada. Right. And especially now to nowadays, politics, mm-hmm. how disgusting, you know, it's uh, it's like two races of people. It seems to be lately the, the way people fight um, uh, ideology in general. Right. Um, religion, such a massive one, money, wealth, class. Um, and so this is what I think is being discussed in this novel, not just racism, although it's could be the biggest one on that chart. Right. Mm-hmm. And appropriately it starts out that way too um but he's got a bigger philosophical viewpoint and i think he wants everyone at all the points in your life to understand what invisibility and how how there is this disconnect and we're assuming so much and that um we should realize that um you know we're we're far more complicated than that you know yeah i i actually i love that phrase two things there phil one um, you know, that's, that's the unexamined life is not worth living. That's teaching 101 right there, right? As you dig deeper and deeper and deeper and, and recognize that every student sitting in front of you has some connection to this larger sort of artistic philosophical view of who we want to be as humans. I mean, that's the fundamental nature of, of, of where we are. And, and, and we hope that we all can start to recognize that and, and not, you know, make ourselves invisible and not, not put ourselves in those categories and not be able to see ourselves because of the mirrors that surround us as well too. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and so in the, in the allegory of the cave, um, one of the things that's often overlooked is not only do you see shadows on the wall, you see a shadow of yourself Yeah. and that's all you see. Right. You don't see yourself and you can't look over and see the other people around you either. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think invisibility really captures the allegory of the cave in a really kind of mysterious way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's its own allegory of the cave. Yeah. And, and, and so, um, you know, I, I think the image of the self too, uh, that's a great point to bring up because, you know, um, it would also be a, its own kind of mirrors. Mm-hmm. Every, every time you think of yourself, you're projecting an image. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it's based on what you think of yourself, what people have told you about yourself, and you kind of mold it into this thing. Mm-hmm. And so um, existentialism is questioning that, too. And um, I think it's all beautifully wrapped up in this narrative package here. Um, Ellison, he does it so masterfully. Certainly. Oh, wow. <laughs> now I'm thinking we need to have another another episode on just simply existential thinkers, right? There's yeah. so many possibilities here. I'm curious. So, so Phil, this book, upon rereading it for me, it is so contemporary. It is so today. It is so the world we live in. Um, the nature of this podcast is it lit matters. Why books matter to us? So I'm, I'm curious, why do you think um, the why do you, I almost, I did it. I almost did it. I knew I would do it. Uh, I almost would say the invisible man, not invisible uh, man. They're HG Wells is an entirely different work. Not nowhere near as profound. Why do you think invisible man um, matters to our world today? Why should we all rush out and read it? I, I think that it is dealing with this really interesting world, especially right at this very moment with um, critical theory. Mm-hmm. Um, this whole notion of critical race theory, we always hear this too. Um, and I think that kind of misses the greater point that he wants to say. It's critical theory. It's not just critical race theory. It's also critical class theory and critical social theory and critical political theory. It's, it's, it's critical theory in that um, and it's more philosophical uh, because it's really bringing home that existentialist point that we shouldn't buy into our identities. We shouldn't um, define ourselves only by uh, exterior things, 
we need to define ourselves by interior things. And I think he famously has a quote where he says, you know, I'm not going to be free until I know myself. And this is a man speaking in the 1950s. And so you can see he's got a greater philosophical viewpoint in mind. Um, and so I think it helps us to understand, you know, uh, this, this really sensitive topic of um, identity and race in a way that's um, transcendent. And that is a little uncomfortable for some people too, because one of the answers to the solution to this is more identities, more and more identity. Just, you know, um, f figure out your identity, uh, define it better and, and more, you know, uh, specifically, and then uh, it'll be, you know, all better. I think that his solution would be something more like, let's stop relying on identity so much. We don't ever want to forget about it, especially racial identity. That's also... Um, it's not just one way or the other, I don't think, where it's going to be, um, let's just completely forget about race or let's just, you know, completely prop propagate race. It needs to be somewhere in that middle ground. And I think this is the perspective Ellison's writing from. And it's always going to be a little bit confusing, a little bit, you know, uh, philosophical in that sense, uh, because um, it's not a one or the other answer. It's a both. It's a both. It's we have these identities, they don't go away, but we also shouldn't be overly defined by them as well. Um, and, and understand that um, <clears throat> even in the Republic, uh, I bring this up how many times today, um, you're defined by your mind, not by you know, the outward as much. We've, we've found this out that uh, people who seem to function in one way bodily can also function another way mentally. And so um, natures are defined by the mind more than, you know, uh, the, the outward conditions. And so um, I, I think, again, existentialism and Ellison, he's really trying to, to help you define yourself and define your own world authentically. And so this, this text is dealing with authenticity. Um, you know, if you're just defined by outside things, by all these identities, then you really... Um, you know, it's not authentic. What you need to do is, is to find out what truly, you know, uh, makes you, you, what, what you truly enjoy, what, what your function is. Um, and, and it might not be defined, certainly not by, you know, classic categories of society and tradition. I'm curious, as I'm sitting here thinking as well, too, is this one thing that uh, has always drawn you to philosophy, this even this notion, I think we as a society rely upon, you know, there's, there's only one truth. There's only one explanation. We're always looking for that. And, you know, philosophy takes us into all of these possibilities where, you know, do you think you have the truth, right? Yeah. It's not the red pill, the blue pill, like there are many pills, right? There are many possibilities. You know, is that what we, we love about this search, this search for knowledge, this search for what it is to be human, that, that there is no singularity in terms of, how we are defined or how we find that purpose or meaning. Yes. Um, function too. I keep on going back to that. Another huge idea in the Republic, uh, trying to find your function and what's, what's your function. It's the thing that you, that it, something's function is the thing it can do better than other things. And um, there's been a big issue with that in, in this new contemporary world, you know, are you defined by that, by the outside, like I've been talking about, by mm -hmm. your function? Um, or can you find the function that's appropriate for you? And so society in general and things, it's been pointing us in certain directions. But um, can you find the one that's right for you? Uh, you know, can you um, find that function, that thing that you can do better than all other things? And also something that you, you love. And, and so um, I, I think that, that that's really been a practical draw in philosophy for me. And mm -hmm. um, in the Republic, too, it talks about the soul. Mm -hmm. And what was so funny about that is soul is just the word psyche. Mm -hmm. And so it's the same word for mind. And so I, I always joke, you know, don't go to psychology class. Tell me we're studying soul today. Let's study soul. <laughs> <clears throat> but Plato defines what soul is in the Republic. And he says, it's really simple. It's whatever is doing this for you in your life, um, planning for your benefit and caring for your benefit 
in carrying out these things. And so there's a rational part, a spirited part that makes you actually do it, and a desiring part. And so if the spirited part listens to, to the desires only and not to the reason, then it's going to get out of balance and be in, you know, in disrepair, unhealth. On the other hand, if it listens to reason, then um, the desires will be tempered. The, the spirit will be doing what the reason says, and you will be living, you know, virtuously and in harmony and in a healthy life. And um, it's really kind of profound to think that in my own self, there's something there that's planning. Mm -hmm. It's planning for me, but that's not good enough. I can sit in my bed and plan all the time and nothing comes of it. There's another part that actually makes you go and do those things, right? It says, all right, we've sat here long enough thinking about it. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing that makes you get out of bed every morning and not just sit in it. And they're, they're different functions according to, you know, this is Plato's psychology here. Um, but what I, I always thought was really helpful, but um, there's also the desiring part. And it wants to desire, your desiring part, it wants what's good for you. But sometimes it can go overboard. And we all know this. We don't let ourselves have every desire we want. We have to stop ourselves and, and mitigate those desires um, or else you're going to be hurting real soon, right? And so um, <clears throat> this practical kind of collective uh, that there is in me something that cares for me, plans, and, and make sure I, I do or do not do things, right? Um, and and to, to really, you know, when you see someone with a problem in their life, there's a problem with one of those things. Mm -hmm. They're not planning properly or they're not desiring the right things. And then they're not carrying those things out, even if they may have those together. And so there was really like this uh, beautiful, I don't hate, I hate to call it self-help, but mm -hmm. this kind of road to your own ability to apply this or not to apply this in your life. And it's been um, very, you know, profoundly helpful in the very simple way that it is to, um, to examine your life that way and to try to align it, to make an imbalance like three strings on a harmony. This is, mm -hmm. this is what you're trying to do with the, this particular kind of virtue ethics. And, um, and so I've, I felt very helpful in, um, in my own life. And, uh, and I, I see that here too. Um, and, and Ellison, by, you know, define yourself by the inward, by the soul, by the mind, and not, you know, by all those outward things that would have you doing so many things you do not want to do, or, or maybe it's not appropriate for you. Wow, Phil. I, yeah, I can see why everyone should run out and read Ellison's Invisible Man. It, it is so applicable to our world today. I'm curious, um, why does philosophy matter in our world today? In today's age, uh, with, with so many thinkers, so many minds, so much technology, everyone thinks it's all been figured out. There's nothing for them to contribute. There's nothing... Uh, no questions for them to investigate, where my job as a philosophy teacher, my brand of philosophy is to say, no, actually, that's not true. All the questions in life, all the things you think are all figured out are, are still up for debate in so many ways, in, in, in the most fundamental ways. And so um, I think there's a lot of people losing a passion for life in this day and age, where um, I think philosophy helps you to um, to jump back into the questions, to um to dive back into the, your passion for life and to investigate those things that you, you love the most that are, are, are most curious for you. And so, um, especially in this day and age, I, I had the pleasure of getting to go to a middle school and teaching philosophy to middle school kids. And that view of life where um, you could see some students, they just really think it's all figured out. There's nothing for them. And other students, they, they can't wait to dive in and contribute. And so, um, my brand of philosophy hopefully will um, help people to re-alive re in the passion for life, uh, the, the passion for questioning the world around them again. Uh, it's not all figured out. Um, we, need, we need to readdress these things. Life's a bit, a bit more uh, fraught with possibility if it's not swipe left or swipe right or swipe up or swipe down, right? There's so much that's there. There we go. And so um, that, that idea too, um, that we are the gray area subject in, in philosophy. We're dealing with, with the shades of gray in so many ways. And that's really where all the nuance and all the dynamic of life is. Um, in, in logic, we often, you know, we're, we're cheating half the time. We're trying to set up the rules such that it's valid or invalid. That's all. Mm -hmm. um, but really, um, 
we're, we're more dynamic than that. This world is, is far more inductive. It's got much more probability. And, um, and so sifting through that, dealing with all the, the dimensions and degrees, that's really where also philosophy is very helpful. And um, I think it will uh, enrich, uh, you know, someone's life everywhere they go if they, you know, um, pursue it that way. Passionate questioning, you know, about life, about everything. Well, Phil, I think that you should not be surprised if I come sliding into your classroom and sitting in the back and try to return back to my first day of college because I'm still equally, I still am asking those questions, but why? And, and you know, I feel as though I have so much to learn and so much to gain. Um, well, that is uh, another episode of, of the Lit Matters podcast. And um, one of my favorite philosophers, John Locke, wrote, reading furnishes the mind only with materials of knowledge. It is thinking that makes what we read ours. So I would say to all of my listeners, please keep reading. Please keep making that knowledge yours. And please keep asking why, why, why? And Phil, I want to thank you so much for joining the podcast today. And I can't wait to catch up with you around the copy center. I can't wait to slide into your classroom and just sit down at a desk one day and listen to what you have to say about the world and life and, and all of that. So thank you so very much. Hey, anytime. My pleasure. Oh, it's great. Thank you. Thank you. Much appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Lit Matters podcast. All content is written by Chris Evans and the show is produced by Steve Baldwin. Our opening theme is courtesy of the band Soup and today's closing theme, courtesy of the Simkin Project. Find them online wherever you listen to great music. Place before.